So Revelation chapter 1, first one starts out with the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is a good key point to always keep in mind as we're reading this, is that it is telling us about Jesus Christ in a fuller picture. We're going to see Him in new and different ways than, than we've seen Him in the Gospels. Uh, and so that's a little thing to keep in mind. Uh, we are still in the introduction. Um, normally, introductions and the greetings and the salutations and the epistles, you know, the, the, the letters that are written, are, you know, sometimes might be a few verses and... Uh, but it's always kind of, uh, kind of formulaic in how it is. This one's a little bit different. John hasn't even really formally introduced himself and where he was. That, that's coming. And so uh, Helene had asked me, she goes, you, you know, normally you kind of tell us about the author and what's going on. We're getting to that, you know, as it gets down to John and where he was and what was going on in his life. And so uh, that's coming up. And so, uh, but introduction is important. It gives the setting. It tells what's going on. It tells... It's helping to get us in the right frame of mind so we can take the text that's being given to us and and dissect it correctly. You know, we know where it is. You ever get a text that's kind of random and you don't know whether to take it good, bad? And you're like, I don't know, are they mad? Are they happy? You know, and so it's kind of of hard, you know, and so uh, this is what this is. It's kind of giving us a context. It's it's introducing us to to what is going on, uh, to get our minds in the correct place. He's going to give us the setting and he's going to tell us what it is that was shown him. He hasn't even got to that yet. Um, We're in verses 7 and 8, but... Um, he starts showing us stuff later. He starts telling us what he actually sees and what actually happens when he starts give, is given the revelation. But we haven't even gotten to that yet. He's still kind of setting the stage for us. We're ready for verse 7. We'll read verse 7 and 8 here this morning. It says, uh, Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him. And they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. Not surprisingly, verse 7 and 8 come after 5 and 6. You know, that's a kind of numerical in that way. But verse 5 and 6, uh, John was praising Jesus. You know, he, he's going to tell us about him. He's going to give us this revelation. But he starts out with praising him. And then verse 5, he, he says, And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, a faithful witness, he is telling us that you can trust him. He is faithful. It's a trustworthy source. What he says is trustworthy. We need to hear that today. Especially as it gets later and later, it's one of the things that Jesus uses to describe the last days as a day of deception. We are deceived a lot. We might even talk about that tonight, you know, about the deception and, and what is going on, how we have to be keen. We, we, have to be, we, we can't be passive in this. We have to be active and, and checking out and knowing and saying, is this true or is this right? We should have a closeness with the Holy Spirit in this so we can see and know, but we can trust Jesus. You know, we can trust Him. Um, he is true. He is trustworthy. What He tells us in this account that He's going to give us is trustworthy and true, and it will happen as He said. It also says that Jesus is the first begotten of the dead. He's alive. He's alive. He is not one who is dead. He's not someone who lived in the past that we study in history, and that's all it is. He is alive. He is coming back. He is is active. And he, if you repent of your sins and trust in him, you too will be alive again one day, or you'll be changed in the moment of the twinkling of an eye. We'll have that glorified body like we have studied about Jesus in the past, if we trust him. And it also says that Jesus is the prince of the kings of the earth. He's the highest authority. This is different. We saw him before, you know, they had him in chains. They were dragging him around. They led him to his execution. You know, uh, there was times they were after him. They sought to kill him. He comes back this time. He is the power. He is the authority. He is the prince of kings of the earth. He is the one who's in charge. He is the one who's in control. Every knee bows. Every tongue confesses. There's no more plucking his beard out. There's no more punching or spitting him. There's no more mocking or making fun of him. Uh, no, no, it's different. 
when he comes back. It is different than it was the first time. And so this is already kind of telling us this is a revelation of Jesus Christ. He is revealing things to us that are different than how we've seen him before. And so, yes, he is in control. He is over all the rulers. And so we need to know that. And so it is comforting to us even in this day and age, knowing how things are going. And a lot of times you can sit around and watch the news and like, I don't know, and get so infuriated by, by things that are being said and things that are being done and misrepresentations that are being put out there. But I can take a step back saying, he is in charge. He is in control. He knows what is going on. He knows how he's moving and working. I just have to ask, where do you have me in the, in, in the midst of this? And then the next part is astonishing that John talks about. He says, Jesus, this uh, one who is true, the one who is resurrected, and the one who's head over every king, says he loves us. And that he's cleansed us from our sins by dying for us. Jesus died to save us. This high, important, true witness that he's been talking about. He saved his enemies. He saved sinners. He saved those who saw their sinfulness and turned and repented from it and trusted in him to save them. He has done that. And hold on, he's not done. He also says, and he will make us kings and priests. He's going to put us in high positions of authority. Who would have thought? You know, who would have thought this would happen? That we will rule with him? That we will serve him throughout all eternity? That just leaves me with a wow. You know, why? Who is us? What? David, what is man that you are mindful of him? You know, the same thing, you know, that he would do that. That he would come down and save us. And then not only save us, something that we don't deserve, but then reward us for serving him. It's in the middle of this praise of him going on about who Jesus is and what he's doing and what he has in store for us that by the time this gets over, we'll have little hints of us being kings and priests and and rulers and people in authority and we'll look at those little pictures as we go through it. But it's in the middle of this praise of Jesus and who he is and what he's done and some of these astonishing things that John says this in verse 7, Behold. Behold. We don't say that much today. I always think in movies, and the one I always think of is one of my favorite movies when I was growing up, King Kong. I don't know why I liked that so much, but I did. You know, I was a giant monkey. Why wouldn't you like it? You know, it was a giant monkey. It was kind of mysterious, you know, something that they didn't think existed would be there. Maybe that's why I got a bus with a giant Bigfoot on it. You know, I don't you know. But it's not, you know, big, this big mystery. I like mystery. I like thinking, I like thinking that I root for Bigfoot. You know, I hope he's there because they're like, no, he does not exist. I'm like, I hope you're wrong. Yeah, just to show him wrong. I don't know. Maybe I'm an antagonist that way. I don't know. But, but it's this behold, and I think of especially... The really cheesy version from 1976, where it's an animatronic King Kong, and they built this giant beast, and oh, I thought that was the coolest thing. But um, when they bring him, you know, they capture Kong, and they bring him to the United States, and the big presentation is you have the hawker, you know, the guy who's like building up, and now you're all here, and I present to you Kong! And they bring out this cage, they pull back the curtain, and there's Kong, or Mighty Joe Young, or whichever, a lot of giant monkeys in movies. You know, and then they bring him out, and everybody's, you know, wow, and astonishment, and I was like... You know, I can describe that, and you know, some of us will get that. We've got the Kong Rippers, but I don't know if there's a, a newer, contemporary way to, to help us understand, behold. And the only one I could think of was Fixer Upper. <laughs> Fixer Upper, you know, Chip and Joanna Gaines. They go into a community, and they take the, the lowest price house in the community, and they'll flip it, and they'll turn it into the showplace of the town. You know, they're going to do that. And then, you know, so they, they get a couple, and they pick out this house, and, and they see it, and it's all kind of run down, and I hate that carpet. And why would they do that with the ceiling? And where's the shiplap? You know, and they have all this, and they, and they go through, and they talk about how horrible this is and what they want to transform it into. And so the rest of the episode is them working on it, and the owners are away, and they don't see it. But when you get to the very end, they stand there, you know, Chip's on one side, and Joanne's on the other, and they got this giant picture of the house as it was, if you haven't seen the show. And they're like, they're like, are you ready to see your fixer-upper? And these people are like, yes, you know, look at this picture. 
And then they basically, they don't say it, but it's implied as they pull it back, behold. And they pull back this picture, and there's their new house. And they're always crying, and they're always tears, and they're hugging each other. And like, I can't believe it, you know, and all that. That's this. Look is what behold means. See, you know, check this out. You know, feast your eyes on. That's what John is telling us now. He's saying, look at this. It's like, I'm pulling this back. You get to see what it is. Behold, look and see. It's a command. Look at this. Check this out. Feast your eyes on it. Behold what? He's coming back. Jesus is coming back. Verse 7. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him. And they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. Jesus is true witness. And Jesus says, I'm coming back. I am coming back. We are told to do this. We are told to look. We are told to watch. We are told to wait. We are told to see this. Uh, The Bible proclaims it in multiple places. So like I said, we're still in the introduction. But already it's going to drive us back to the rest of the Bible. Is trying, even in this little statement, is saying, this should sound familiar. This has been told before. And now I am about to tell you, we are on the precipice of him pulling that apart. And we're going to see the events that are happening surrounding Christ's return. When he comes back and establishes his kingdom, and he's going to do all this. He says, I'm kind of giving you the secret up front, which they say is a good way of teaching. I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you. Here it is. He is coming back. This is the surprise at the end. It's going to get bad. It's going to get real bad. I guess they kind of think of Princess Bride. You know, he's reading the story. He quits. And he's like, what are you doing? He goes, you look pretty scared. He goes, I'll let you know they make it. Oh, oh okay. You know, so, yep. We make it. We win. You know, but it's this little preface telling us that it's going to get bad, though. It's going to get bad, but we win. He comes back. And so um, he said the Bible tells us to do this. We are to watch. We are to look. We are to wait. And it says it multiple times, but I'm going to look at, I'm going to look at least one instance of each uh, before we go forward. Let's look at Luke 12. Luke 12 has two of them in it. It has a wait and a watch. It's a full picture where Jesus is explaining what it is. Verse 35. Luke 12, 35 says, Let your loins be girded about. That means be ready and your light's burning. Uh, you're to be watching. You're to have your light on. It's that, that sense of readiness. I have clothes on the edge of my bed, so if I have to get middle of the night, I can put them on. I have a flashlight there, two different kinds usually. Uh, whenever I don't have a flashlight there, that's when something happens outside. Oh, something hit the house. I don't know what that was, and I can't find a flashlight. You know, but we're supposed to be ready. You're supposed to have a light ready. You're supposed to have your clothes girt about you in that way. And so that, that's what's going on here. Verse 36. And ye yourselves liken to men that wait. There's it. We're supposed to wait for their Lord. When he will return from the wedding, and that when he cometh and knocketh, they may open unto him immediately. So you're working in the master's house. The master's gone away to a wedding. What time is it going to be over? I don't know. What time is he going to get done? You don't know. But you better be there with the light on, ready to open the door as he gets there, ready to usher him in, get him ready for what it is. That's a good servant would be doing that. That's what he's saying we should be doing. We should be watching. We should be waiting. We should be looking because we don't know when he's coming. Verse 37, blessed are those servants whom the Lord, when he cometh, shall find watching. Verily I say unto you that he shall gird himself and make them sit down to meet and will come forth and serve them. What? He says he's going to come in, and not only do they come in, they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. He says, but he's going to turn around and serve them. You're so good and faithful. You were watching for me when I came. Let me turn around and serve you and get you ready. Let me get you some meal before you go to bed. That's what happens when he takes us home. He has a banquet for us when we get up there. There's a table that is set up. There's a beam seat. There's a whole reward things that happen. So Jesus says, this is what it's like. It's important for you to be watching and waiting. He is motivating us to be waiting for him, watching for him when he comes. 
Verse 38. And if you shall come in the second watch or come in the third watch and find them so, blessed are those servants. And this know that if the good man of the house would have known what hour the thief would have come, he would have watched and not suffered his house to be broken through. Uh, be you therefore ready for the Son of Man cometh at an hour when you think not. So verse 37 tells us to be watching. Verse 36 tells us to be waiting. We're to be doing that. Look at Philippians chapter 3. Philippians 3, verse 20. Philippians 3.20 says, For our conversation is in heaven, and from whence we also look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're to be looking for Him, who shall change our vile body, and it shall be fashioned like unto His glorious body, according to the work and whereby He is able even to subdue all things unto Himself. We're to be looking for Him. We're, we're to be thinking about heaven. We're to be talking about heaven. We're to keep an eye up looking like it. It may be today. You never know. You know. This might be the time. We're to be looking for Him, watching for Him, waiting for Him, busy about our business, Living life, but with an eye open, an eye on the sky, an eye watching for him. Uh, and the last one I'll look at is in Thessalonians. First Thessalonians chapter 1. Just over to the right a little bit. First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. This is one of my favorites because it's kind of a, a nutshell of salvation and what's expected of us. Uh, so First Thessalonians 1, verse 9 says, For they themselves show of us what manner of inner in we had unto you, and how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That's salvation right there. That's repentance. You turn to God from idols. It, it literally even paints the picture for you. You were going this way, but you turn to God from all that. That's salvation. Then what are we supposed to do? Verse 10. To wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. The wrath that's ahead that we're going to read about in, in the book of Revelation, that's not for us. He's delivered us from that. We're to be waiting for him to come and take us out. Now, the second coming and the rapture are two different things, but we're supposed to be waiting for him, watching for him, and then we'll come back with him at the second coming. But we're to have that anticipation, looking for him coming in this way. He tells us he's going to come, and he is going to come, and he's literally going to come and, and establish his kingdom on the earth. Um, literally, it's a promise from him. Look at John, the Gospel of John, chapter 14. John 14 and verse 3 this is the night of the, the Last Supper, and he's about ready to be crucified, and he's buttoning up some things and encouraging uh, the apostles and disciples. In John 14, 3, he says, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, that you may be also. He says, I will come again. I am coming, and this is a promise to you. I am coming back. I'm not, I'm not going. He didn't go to heaven to stay. He goes, I'm coming back. I'm going to establish my kingdom. We're going to fulfill all these things. This is where we're going to live. He is coming back. So if we go back to Revelation 1, it says, Behold, he cometh with clouds. He cometh with clouds. Acts 1, verse 9, we don't have to turn there, but that's where Jesus ascended up into heaven. You know, if you remember that, he meets with them. They're on Mount of Olives. He says his goodbyes and then tells them his last words. And then he starts flying. You know, he, he goes up into the sky, up until they watch him, until the clouds receive him, and, and he goes on. You know, the angels are like, why stand you gazing? you got work to do. You know, go get busy. He says he's going to come back like that. The same way we saw him go. Matter of fact, at the same spot is the same thing in reverse when he comes back. And I don't think it was just the sky. I think it's the way they always portray it. But uh, I don't think it's like he went through the clouds, then ultimately he entered low orbit, and then flew through space, and then entered to the edge of space where he stepped into the throne of, of heaven. I don't think it's... Away that way. I think it's on another dimension. 
uh, kind of like Elisha. And he's like, we're surrounded. And he's like, open his eyes, Lord. And then, then he sees that they were there, but on a different wavelength, a different frequency that, that we don't perceive unless God wants us to perceive. I think it's in that way, but um, maybe dimension is how it would be described. It's a higher plane of some sort that uh, angels can go back and forth through, but, but we necessarily can't. But, it, but when it does, you know, that it's cloudy you know, as they look through there. When we've seen all the other, other accounts, when they look up, they talk about clouds and being around. But every time that Jesus is described or God is described, it talks about clouds. In the Old Testament, you know, he, is the, he was the cloud that watched over them in the wilderness in that way. He was the Shekinah glory that came down and filled the temple. It drove out the priest when they dedicated it. It was this cloud. It was this turning, churning thing that was palpable that, that they had, had to get away from. Uh, it was that smoke in the temple. It was called Sheka- God's Shekinah glory. It was this cloud that kind of like helped protect us and, and veiled him and, and what was going on. But it's God's glory, this, this shiny thing. And as he went up, it like lit up and as he goes on. Uh, I want to look at one in Daniel 7. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. Daniel 7, Daniel seven thirteen says, I saw in a night vision, and behold, one like the Son of Man, that's a title that Jesus liked to use for himself, one like the Son of Man, came with the clouds of heaven, and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And they were given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed. So about his coming, when he comes back and establishes his kingdom, the Son of Man, the Messiah, is has clouds around him, even in this account. Jesus quotes this in Matthew 26, if we turn there. This is when he's on trial. And they're looking for a reason to kill him, though they're making up whatever they want, and they pay liars to do whatever they want. But Jesus quotes Daniel 7.13 here in Matthew 26, verse 64. Matthew 26.64, And Jesus said unto him, Thou hast said, Nevertheless, I say unto you, Hereafter you shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. You're going to see me in this way. You know, I'm going to reveal myself. Uh, clouds and his coming are almost always together. It's in Matthew 24, Mark 13, Mark 14, Luke 21, Revelation 14, plus many others. Clouds and Jesus Christ being there together. We could, uh, there's other illusions about God being on the clouds and things in the Old Testament. So when he comes, it's going to be in the sky. He's telling us where it's going to be. It's going to be in the clouds. It's going to be up. Uh, let alone we have Hebrews that talks about the saints being the clouds, the witnesses that are there. And so he's going to come with them as he, as he comes back, that cloud around him, this army will, will be us as it returns. Uh, but he's going to be up in the sky. Uh, look at, while well, we're in Matthew, look at Matthew 24, verse 23. Again, he's telling us it is up. He wants us to be wise. I think that's why we have the Revelation in, in, in Revelation 1 where he is now telling us, hey, remember these accounts in, in the Bible? And so we've just taken a quick little trip through some of them. Uh, but here's one where he has an encounter with the disciples and he's telling them about his return. And in Matthew 24, he gives them this warning, verse 23. Then if any man shall say unto you, Lo, here is Christ, or there, believe it not. For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets, and they shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. He's saying there's going to come a time of deception. There's going to come people that are going to say that they are Messiah, and they're going to do some pretty fantastic things. But how'd they get there? They show up. He continues on, verse 25. Behold, I have told you before. He says, I'm telling you this in advance to warn you. Verse 26. Wherefore, if they say unto you, Behold, he is in the desert, go not forth. Behold, he is in a secret chambers, believe it not. For as the lightning cometh out of the east and shineth even unto the west, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. 
Where's lightning happen? In the sky, and how bright it is, and sudden, and it gets your attention, and it's a boom, and you turn and you look, and sometimes it freezes you in your tracks, and it's, it's not some secret thing in the desert. Oh, he's in a cave hiding in the desert. Let's start a cult and, and go out there and follow him, or he's in some secret chamber. Um, there's been newspaper accounts in the 70s. Jesus will appear at this convention, you know, and the Jehovah Witnesses would have some guy, and he would sit there and say he was Jesus, or the Mormons, or whoever it was, and, and they had these ads, Jesus is here, Jesus is doing this, and there's other people that say they're Christ. Uh, not too long ago, we went through, and I listed a lot of the modern-day people that claim to be Christ. There's one who's in trouble in South America right now that uh, Oprah had on and all this stuff. It's like, uh, he's, getting in, he's getting in trouble. So we have all these ones that are there. And Jesus says, no, when I come back, there's no mistaking. Everyone will see it. It's a bright thing that happens in the sky. There's clouds. I'm there. It is bright like this lightning flash. It's like this thunder. Uh, it's no more babies in a manger. It's no more no room for me. There's no more uh, people thinking to kill me when I do this. No, when I come back, I am in charge. I am control. It is bright. It is sudden. I'm here. Boom. You know, that, that Christ is on the scene. You will know it. Revelation 1 verse 7 says, Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him. And they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. Every eye shall see him. Everyone, even the ones who pierced him. Some take that to mean, that, oh, the Jewish nation, they are the ones who crucified him, or the Romans, you know, the Romans are the ones who had crucifixion, that, that they will see him. That's true, yes. Uh, and I think the very ones also, the ones who actually did it, will be there too. I think all living and all dead will see the day when Jesus returns. They are down there, they are looking, we have a Luke account where they, they can see things that happen across the great gulf, and they're like, oh, let him dip his finger and touch me. They, they're going to see this, the day that Christ returns, Everyone knows it. It's a boom. It is here that the time has come. Jesus Christ is returning. It's going to be sudden. It's going to be quick. It's going to be like a bright flash of lightning. There's going to be no mistaking of who it is, what it was, and what is going on. Everyone will know. Everyone would perceive. And for those who trust in him as Savior, it is our victory day. It is the day of vengeance when he comes back and it's the ones like, ah, you persecuted them. I now will set this straight. It is for us. He is our rescuer. He is the redeemer. It is the day longed for. The king is here and he's coming to his kingdom. It's going to be a day of cheering and shouting for us. It's like, yes, victory for us, but not for the lost. For those who opposed him and mocked him and persecuted him, persecuted his church, Persecuted his nation, Israel. Persecuted his people, the Jews. Who persecuted his followers and mocked and made fun of them and crucified them and killed them and and made life miserable for them. Still, I read a statistic this week. The most persecuted group of people on the earth is Christians. It's Christians. It's not gays and lesbians. It's not um, blacks. It's not, well, it's, it's Christians. Christians is the one that are consistently around the world persecuted, paying for their faith because they stand up for Christ, because we represent him. They are the most persecuted. It is a day of mourning for them when they see him come as king. It is a day of wailing, it says here, and they shall wail. Wail, that means uh, that they... They beat themselves with grief. It's that, oh, what have I done? They knock themselves on the head, pulling their hair, to smite themselves of grief. See, it's a day of wailing. Their hope is over. They didn't win. They lost. Uh, they weren't able to stop him. They, are, they lost, and they are lost forever. They threw in with the wrong side. Their, their future is done. They have no more anything to look forward to but sorrow and sadness and, and judgment. Uh, they were wrong. Their whole life was wrong. Their lifestyle was wrong. Everything they stood for were wrong. Everything that they said was right was wrong. How would you like that when you find at the end, you're like, everything you thought and believed in was a deception and you bought into it. That whole 
bottom falling out of your life. This is what they experience on that day. And, and they are going to only look forward to judgment and that sentencing and then living with that wrongness of that they were wrong to him all that time. It says here that they wail. Like I said, they beat themselves. But look at Matthew 24 when Jesus tells us this uh, before. Matthew 24, verse 30. Matthew 24, verse 30 says, And then shall appear uh, the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And they know it's unstoppable. They know that they have lost. They know that He is who He said He is. They know what they have done. And they're like, what have we done? And they are mourn over it. And Zechariah talks about the Jewish nation who have come to know him at this point in time and they look upon him whom they pierced and then they are saddened. What did we do? The Messiah came and our nation rejected him. But it's a time when he comes and rescues them at this time when the beast is trying to, to, skill, to, to kill them and destroy them. But he's going to rescue them and set them free. And John ends it with saying, Even so, amen, thou sayest, this is true. This is going to be done. Amen. Let it be, Lord, when you come back that you establish your kingdom. And then Jesus goes to our memory verse here. Jesus introduces himself. Verse 8, I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. He's the Alpha. Alpha and Omega, this is you know, the, the Greek alphabet. It's from A to Z. He goes, I am everything from beginning to end. He's the author of all time. He is the author of things when it started. He's the one who created the world. He is the one who's at the end who finishes and establishes eternity. He is that. He is also the alpha. He is the dominant one. That's a common term today, the alpha male. He is the alpha. He is the one who is head. He is the one who is leader. He is the one that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. He is also the omega man. He is the last man. He is the man who is in charge and in control, the one that we all yield to and the one he is over us. He is both those alpha and omega. He is A to Z and he is everything in between. I am in charge. I am in control. This is what he's telling us before he gets into Revelation where there are some dark, dark things. When this world is shaken, when this world is poisoned, when this world is nothing but death and most of the people are dying, when the green grass burns up, all the trees burn up, all the fish in the sea die, when you have all these things that begin to happen, when meteors begin to pelt the earth at a, at a, at a horrible rate and to the point where it says that world shakes to and fro like a drunk man, where every island is moved out of place, when mountains are leveled flat, it's going to be a horrible and terrifying day and we're going to be like, what's going on? Who's in charge? Jesus is telling us at the outset, I'm in charge. I'm in charge. I'm in control. Trust in me. Trust me in this. Know that I am doing this. He's giving us that reassurance up front that, I, that I've not lost the battle. And when Antichrist is wearing out the saints and when he's persecuting them and it seems like, oh no, there's going to be no one left. Jesus is like, I'm in charge. I, 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 I know what I'm doing. I, I'm using all this to my glory. This is, uh, I, we have a plan. I, I am the one. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the one in charge of all this. So he's in control so we're to trust in Him. He is Lord. Alpha the ending, the beginning and the ending. He's in charge at the beginning. He'll be in charge at the end. He's the one which is and which was and which is to come. He's eternal. Uh, this is something that we used to describe God the Father earlier, but it also describes Jesus Christ because He is God in the flesh. And then He also says, and, and I like that when He which, what, which is, and which was and which is to come. He always is. It's the New Testament version, as we said before, of the I am. You know, I am, he just is. You know, he, he was in the past, he is now, he is in the future. This is the Greek equivalent of that. I am the I man, I am, this is Jesus. I am the one which was, which is, and which is to come. I have it all covered. I am outside of time. I am over all time. I am the one of charge of all these things. 
And then he says here that he is the Almighty. The Almighty. The one whose hand is on everything is literally what it means. The one whose hand is in and on everything. You ever thought he's far away? You ever thought he doesn't know what you're going through, what you're facing? You ever thought he's abandoned you and maybe let you down in some way? His hand is on everything. He is the driver and he is in control. We move from him and we have consequences to face. And those children that he has, he disciplines and then we go through some hard things. But his hand is on everything. He is the Almighty. He is the one who is in charge of it all, who knows all, sees all. We're not to lose sight of that. He's telling us this in the outset. I think Almighty is used ten times in the New Testament. Nine of them are in the book of Revelation, reminding us that I'm in charge. My hand's in all this. We might say, Lord, I don't know and understand. He's like, you're right, you don't. I do. Trust me in this. Uh, there's many things. Elaine said it this weekend as we were talking. There's many things that we didn't want our kids to go through that we never would have chosen, that we've not chosen that path. But when we've gone through many of the events in our lives, we look back and we see how God was in it and how God used it and the depths that he took us to and the stronger that he made us and the resolve that was built upon us. You know, because we know he was in charge, that we didn't abandon him in that. That's one of the things we pray for our family. We pray for you, Lord, that they would not lose faith, that they would keep strong, that they would cling to the promises that they have, that they would know who you are and what you are, that they would trust you no matter what they are in. See, that's what prepares you for days when your loved one dies, like Porter and Sue. I can go and talk to her and go and see him on that day and we can tell funny stories and, and laugh and talk about a life well lived because we know. We know because they lived a life that was that way. We're to live a life that proclaims who we are and what we have done, that God is in charge and God is in control. We don't say goodbye today to him. It's until we meet again. You know, there is comfort in that. There is peace in that. Like mom's reply back to me was, heaven got richer. Heaven got richer again. We know another one there. Our heart grows fonder for, the, um, for, for, our, for our future home, you know, because we've sent more people ahead. That's, that's the attitude to have, that God is in charge and in control, not like, where were you? Why did this happen? God is in charge and in control. We are to make him Lord of our life. We are to know that he is the Almighty, that he is moving and that he is working. Uh, the fancy word for it in the New Testament is, he is, or in the Bible, is that he is sovereign. He is sovereign. He is working and in control of everything. The world is not chaotic. It's not spinning out of control. And what is happening, it, it may seem that way to us. But God knows, and he works all things to his glory. And he still astounds. We have seen some miraculous things, and, and I have seen some miraculous things in my lifetime that declare unto me that God is in charge and God is in control. Salvation. Every time it's salvation. That's one of the things I look forward to with the upcoming RU. We will see souls saved. And it will be a transforming work where you take someone that <laughs> thinks they have nothing to offer, that just needs help, and that they're at their lowest lows. We were already told in advance, these people who come in, it's when they're at their lowest low where they have nowhere else to go. We get to introduce them to the God of the universe. And he will transform their lives and change them. Uh, Mrs. Burks had the quote, you know, about uh, Jesus is the best beauty cream or something like that. I can't remember something like that. But basically, and, and the before and after, we watched the one video the night, you know, before and after. After salvation. The joy in their hearts, you know, the, the life back in them. That God is that life spring that comes to them that can heal them. And they can transform them, make them new. We are all examples of that, right? If we've repented and trusted in him, that Jesus Christ has taken us and made us something new. This is the business he's in. He is in charge and he is in control. We get to watch him. He is the almighty. And we get to partner with him in that. And I think that this is why this is here at the beginning, before he even gets to what's happening. He is telling us, trust him. Trust him in your life. Cling to him. 
And he's already driven us through many books. And like I said, I, I read many accounts that uh, we didn't even go and look at. Uh, that he's already telling us, know your word. Know who I am. Know I am trustworthy. Know that I will reward you. Trust me in this. And I pray that you have. And if you haven't, I pray that you do. Repent of your sins and trust me as Savior. But I thank you so much for those of you who have. That we get to live a life that's pleasing unto him.